Welcome, everyone, to episode 85 of Some Luck at Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we're hitting our token foreign language film of the year a little earlier than usual, as we will be reviewing Netflix's Spanish-language festival darling, The Platform. Before we get to that, however, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, in what feels like week 500 of the COVID-19 isolation, how are you doing? How are you doing? And maybe better put, what have you been doing to pass the time? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, first of all, I will just say, I hope that this is not our only foreign film that we review this year, but nothing seems to be guaranteed at this point in terms of the, the movie release schedule and what movies are actually going to come out in 2020 and that we're going to get to watch. So you may be right. This could be our only foreign uh, foreign release of the year. This may be a shoe-in for, uh, for the Oscar next year. Um, yeah. I was but, more making fun of the fact that we've only reviewed one foreign language film the last two years when we yeah. had things like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I'm sure we would have reviewed actually if it'd come out uh-huh. um, at the right it time, but yeah. it, it didn't really ever, ever really did in the U.S. until February, uh, which is only a month ago somehow. Somehow yeah. Parasite won in the Oscar was only a month ago. I, I did see that the other day, and I'm not usually one of those who are like, when people are like, can you believe that this was 10 years ago or whatever? I'm like, okay, fine. Yeah, that's how time works. But when I saw that the other day, and that Parasite winning was only a month ago, I was like, that cannot be real. Because it does seem like it was so long ago. Um, life was so much different then. But yeah, Scott, I've been fine. Um, just here in Tennessee, where I'll be for the foreseeable future. Um you know, watching some some TV shows, watching the Clone Wars, catching up on some movies with my parents, showing them some movies from last year that they never got the chance to see, and uh, playing some college hoops 2K6, you know, to get my uh, sports fix in. So that's the exciting exciting times that I have been living in. Yeah, with all, with all those NCAA licensing uh, lawsuits, they don't make college sports games anymore. So yeah, I had to order this one off Amazon. It came with like a broken case. You know, it's, oh, it's real, uh, real intense. But the game works fine, and you know, it's it's still pretty fun to play. Uh, I I think that the licensing thing will probably be cleared up in the next couple of years with the NCAA. So I think we should be getting those games again, which I for one will welcome. Yeah, I mean, I think the only way that gets resolved is if the the college players just get paid, right? Like that's the way it gets resolved. Yeah, well, there's already, the, I mean, that that would obviously solve it, but there's already some licensing stuff going on um, over the past year. I don't know exactly the specifics of it, but making substantial progress towards at least, you know, giving the players the ability to profit off of their likenesses, the use yeah. of their likenesses in the video game, which have obviously been the issue in the past. So um, I think that we should probably have this issue solved in the next couple of years, hopefully. And I know that People want these games back, and I'm one of them. So, Yeah, that would be really cool. Uh, I've also been watching mostly TV shows. I recently finished Altered Carbon. I finished, I think I talked about finishing The Outsider already. I finished Avenue 5. I'm now like halfway through McMillions, which is the documentary series on HBO about the Monopoly, uh, sorry, the McDonald's Monopoly uh, fixing scandal back in like 
the 90s and also early 2000s, which is pretty interesting. I think yeah. kind of like The Outsider, it's a little bit drawn out, a little probably longer than it needs to be. It doesn't probably need to be six episodes, but still really good. I started Devs last night, which is the Alex Garland show. Really great first episode. Um, if you liked, I mean, if you like Alex Garland stuff, if you like Ex Machina, if you like uh, Annihilation, it has that sci-fi vibe to it. And as with all of Alex Garland's um, productions, the music is is perfect for it. Just the score is, mm-hmm. is great. It really speaks to the atmosphere of the show. And this is more of a kind of mystery thriller, like almost like a, not really a murder mystery, but a, a definitely a mystery thriller of uh, some sort, which is, I think, even more up my alley than some of his other stuff. So really excited about that. Um, still going through BoJack Horseman. So I, I think I joked about this on another podcast. This is like my, uh, if last year was my year of watching a ton of movies, this year my goal is to watch some TV shows. So I hope to watch The Plot Against America soon too that debuted last week which is the alternative history um narrative uh drama on hbo about if charles Lindbergh lived and like rose to power and was essentially like a a, basically a fascist um and like kind of bringing sort of not entirely nazism but a very like anti-jew mentality to the u.s so a really interesting premise to the show i'm going to check that out that's a mini series on hbo yeah i'm watching all the pixar movies right now so i'm Six episodes, six movies in. I just watched the Finding Nemo a couple nights ago and Incredibles last night. Watching Cars next, so it's a good time. Wow, yeah, yeah. Is that all? No, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, that's I all. Haven't actually, been, yeah. I haven't been burning through them as quickly as you, but I did finish High Fidelity on Hulu, which I definitely recommend. It was fantastic. Um, although I have to say, I'm I'm not sure it would be your thing, Scott, because it is like you got to be kind of a big music fan to to I think fully appreciate it. But if you do like music, if you are into music, I think you'll enjoy it. And Zoe Kravitz is a queen. So um, it's on yeah. my list. I will say like if I'm hoping that I can get around to it, it's just prioritizing stuff on the list. I'm not sure, sure where exactly it falls. I, I should tell you this guy, I did finish uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel last week. How about I, that uh, ending though? Interesting. Yeah. Very, very The last episode of season three, I actually really did. Uh, that was like good and bad. I just think that they still is that they handle that whole situation so strangely. Um, and there's a little bit of resolution with that, but it seems so throwaway in the in the grand scheme yeah. of the episodes. That, that was like one of the main detractors, like probably the only detractors in the last two episodes, because I thought episode seven especially was really, really good. Yeah, I do hope that Zachary Levi plays more of a role in season four for sure. God can only hope, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Uh, he's great. He's great as that character. Um, cool. Well, we've talked a lot about that. We're probably going to talk some more about, I mean, no, probably. We are going to talk more about TV shows uh, in part two of today's episode and more about the coronavirus. So if that's what you tuned in for today, don't worry. You'll get your fix later on in the show. But for now, let's go ahead and get to what we came for today, or at least what you and I came here for today. And that is The Platform. The Platform is a satirical sci-fi horror film set exclusively in a prison known simply as The Pit. There are two prisoners per level of the seemingly endless pit and each month, the pair of prisoners on each floor are relocated to a new level. The catch? Each day, the titular gigantic platform is loaded up with food and drink and descends one level at a time to each floor all the way to the bottom, starting from the top. In theory, there is enough food for everyone in the pit if each person on the higher floors only ate their fair share. But in practice, well, the world isn't perfect. Each prisoner is allowed to take one item into the pit with them, and our protagonist, Garang, played by Ivan Masagi, chooses a book, something he soon learns to regret as his floor mate, Trimagazi, played by Zorian Aguilar, takes him under his wing and teaches him the ropes of the pit. 
Scott, I'll stop the setup there. Was the platform like Parasite last year, a wholly engaging, effective, and pointed satire of socioeconomic differences, or was it more of a blunt object whose meaning and premise fell flat? Yeah, Scott, I said this to you during the movie, but foreign cinema really be hitting different um, nowadays. And uh, I think this is another example. This movie isn't on the level of Parasite or The Handmaiden or you know any number of Takashi Miike movies, but it has the those kind of similarities with those movies where you have no idea what's going to happen next, right? There's yeah. these wild concepts. Uh, the plots develop in all of these unexpected ways and there's violence and there's social satire and it's just- More the, violence. The, the kitchen sink. Uh, thrown into the, these movies, but there, there's a certain level of artistry, I think, to all of them, and I think the platform is is included in that. Uh, I think that this is an attention grabbing and, and a movie that will definitely hold your interest throughout its relatively short running time, which I, I did appreciate. Um, and I think that you know, it's it's definitely not made with as much style or grace as something like Parasite, right? Like Parasite is the work of a master filmmaker first and foremost. I'm not sure that I could say the same about the platform. I think the concept takes it a long way. The execution is definitely lacking in some areas. You know, in terms of the satirical aspects of the movie, just listening to the plot description, I think you can kind of see the central metaphor that they're going for here with the the script. And I don't think they deviate from that too heavily uh, as the plot unfolds. There, there are some interesting layers to it, which maybe we can talk about, but, um, for the most part, I think that the the central metaphor, what this movie is satirizing, it is pretty obvious, and there's not a whole lot of nuance to it throughout the movie. Um, and that the same goes for the violence. It's it's very much like the central metaphor. It it, it is uh, very blunt and uh, you know graphic, and it's definitely not. This movie is definitely not for the faint of heart. Um, again, as you might expect from hearing the description. But I think that what what it maybe lacks in some of those departments, it definitely makes up for in the originality of the film. Again, it this is just the kind of movie that we haven't seen before. It blends genres somewhat in interesting ways. Um, and it, it's just the concept takes it a long way. And it, it does remain a constantly thrilling experience. Um, the score is really good. Um, I was pretty invested in the the last act of the movie in particular. I think I, I really like the turns that the story takes down the, towards the end of the movie. Um, and, and in general, I think that if you if you liked Parasite, if you if you are a fan of, uh, you know, these wild type of social satire thrillers that we seem to be getting more in foreign cinema than we get in in American cinema, then I think you should definitely give the platform a watch because it, it's right there on Netflix. I mean, what else are you going to do? We're all quarantined. Yeah, you're telling me that the hunt isn't the social satire that America's looking for? Oh gosh, no. I mean, it, it is. It is a fairly obvious film as well, but this movie takes the cake in the originality department for sure. Yeah, no. I think that, I think that what you're saying there is a good point, right? Because I think we were watching this movie together using Netflix Party. We were, and that's. I would recommend that if you haven't heard of that yet, using Netflix Party to watch Netflix with friends works really well. Um, but we were watching it together, and we were both saying like, well, you know. It really, uh, it really hits you over the head pretty hard, uh, like some of the scenes in the movie, the actual actions taking place uh, with its central metaphor. But there's just something maybe even more engaging and engrossing, or at least on the same level of, say, like the park's home in Parasite. Like the pit is just such an interesting setting. And, and we didn't really talk about it, I don't think, like the house being a character in Parasite. But 
I think it's fair to say, like, the Pit is probably the main character in this film. And we will talk about the cast in, in just a second. But <laughs> one of the things that I find so striking about this film is that I'm not sure I can think of a film off the top of my head where the setting was, you know, as important of a character as it is in this film. Because the mystique of this film and the mystery surrounding it yes, there is absolutely some mystery around maybe the origins of, of or the uh, motivations and, or, or what led certain characters in the in the film to be in the pit. I think there is some mystery there that you could potentially think about, dive into a little bit. But I think what's far more mysterious and what's far more interesting, I just think, is this prison. Like, why, like why is it here? Why does it exist? What is its function? How deep does it go? How many floors are there? in it, what's at the bottom? Is it just like the final floor is the bottom of the prison or is there something else down there? And, and you get a few clips of what is happening at the top on level zero where they're loading the platform. But really that's all that you get outside of the actual prison floors itself, you know, floor by floor. You do get to see quite a few of the different floors over the course of the film. Um, and they're all the same and they're all the same. And, and there's some real mystery behind that. And, and so I think the standout piece of this film is the prison and, and the and the context and the setting that it creates. I think the performances are, are pretty good for the most part, but they're not going to be what you remember about this film. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if six months from now, I don't remember the characters in this film, but I think that the setting itself is something that will stick with you for a really long time. Uh, and as thoughtful as some of the themes might not be just because of how blunt some of them are, it's not that it isn't an interesting premise to set a movie off of either. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily getting you to ask a lot of very difficult questions. It's just offering the questions up and be like, hey, you know, this is something we're thinking about. Um, the answer may seem obvious in theory, kind of like the solution to the problem of food in the prison. But in practice, it seems kind of hopeless. And that's always a weird thing, I think, to, to present a theme and a context for a movie where the theoretical answer, I mean, I guess it's a lot of moral questions, right? The theoretical answer is sometimes really obvious, but how do you convince everyone to uh, not defect? And if it, if it, I mean, it is a prisoner's dilemma in a way. Uh, how do you how do you convince everyone that it's worth not defecting? So it, it, it's, it has a lot of interesting things to talk about in the film, but I wonder how many of those themes actually endure over a longer period of time, more than just the concept of the movie itself, which is kind of where I land on the whole thing, I think. Yeah, I agree. But I, I do think that the themes in particular do speak to our current political moment in a lot of ways. Um, and so I, I do, I, th I think for, for the moment, they feel very relevant. Yeah. But you may be right that 10, 20 years from now, this movie may feel, you know, somewhat obsolete. The questions may not really linger anymore. No, I, I mean, so here's the, here's my take, and we can we're maybe jumping the gun and talking about something that I was going to say for a little bit later. But I, th I think the themes will be relevant forever. I think it's one of those things where the themes will be eternally relevant. But I don't think the answer or the way that you think about the themes is going yeah. to evolve, or like the conversation is not going to progress uh, further. And that is coming from a point of sort of hopelessness around how can you convince people who are more well off to only take their fair share out of a resource in society, however mm -hmm. you want to think about it, and unless something really, it, it could evolve, like something something could significantly change in our society uh, to progress that conversation forward. I just don't see that in the current state of things, uh, that changing all that much. But yeah. I mean, look, 
this is an election year. If someone, you know, who, depending on who gets elected, this whole conversation can change depending on what happens with coronavirus. I mean, honestly, that, that can have effects on how we think about these questions. So maybe I'm wrong on this and maybe, you know, this will be an even more relevant movie a year from now. But either way, I think that this movie is unique enough and is original enough to your point where it's something that you will think about a year from now. It may not be something that really sticks with you and like, oh, I just need to ask these questions over and over again. But the setting is one that I think you won't forget. Yeah, agreed. All right, Scott, moving on to the cast, I think that I, I mentioned a couple names. I mentioned Yvonne Masagi, who plays the the protagonist, Garang. His uh, first cellmate, at the very least, is Zoriana Aguilior. Uh, his name is Trimagasi in the film. There's a couple other characters as well. Uh, Antonia San Juan plays a female character named Imaguiri. And there, again, there's a couple other characters in there as well that you meet over the course of the film. But are there any standout performances, or maybe it's even easier just to talk about the cast as a whole? Uh, obviously, I think the characters, there's a lot to say about the individual characters, but we could save that if you want to. Yeah, I do think that Zorian Egwilor as Trimagasi is probably the standout here in this cast. Yeah. I've seen a couple, at least one review that compared him to a Bond villain, or that he might be a f good future Bond villain. I think that that's definitely... Uh, a good point on the basis of his performance here. Um, he's set up as this sort of character who um, he's been in the the prison for quite a while, right? He, we we learned that he has accidentally killed someone, um, and, and so while maybe the circumstances which brought him into the prison um, don't necessarily indicate that he's a bad person, the actions that he has been forced to take once he is inside the prison. Uh, may, maybe indicate differently, or again, maybe just indicate that he's the victim of circumstance. Um, and it's a little ambiguous what happens in the prison as well. That, that is true, yeah. But the the point being is he's he's a guy who he knows his way around this prison and uh, is definitely played as a foil to the Garing character who, again, I mean, he volunteers himself to be in this prison. He To earn um, a diploma. Yes, he wakes up, you know, at the beginning of the movie, doesn't really know much about how the prison works and has to learn about this from Trimagasi. Um, but there's always that uncertainty to his performance of, you know, is is he really someone that, that Goring can trust? Or, you know, when the tide turns, when they end up on a different level than they are on, is he just going to turn around and stick the knife in his back? Because that's what he has to do in order to survive in, in this prison. We don't really know, um, and so I, I like that that that, that um, uncertainty, that ambiguity to his performance, um, you know, rem remains uh, throughout the movie. And he, he's also just an entertaining actor to watch. He chews the scenery, I think, in in a lot of moments. Even after a certain certain point in in the middle of the movie, he c continues to show up, even when he's no longer the roommate. That's what I'll say. He continues to show up. Uh, throughout the movie, and I think the role that he plays is interesting, and, and the way that his performance evolves is interesting. So if there is a standout, I'd say it's him. Um, but overall, I think the cast is solid, right? Like, I think that kind of like Parasite, they work together well as a unit, um, and there's probably not one el one person other than other than Xavion Egulor, maybe, who who stands out from from the pack, but you know, that's, that's not a bad thing. I think some of the best movies, I always talk about this with, you know, one of my favorite movies, Spotlight, the fact that the cast all works together so seamlessly well, the fact that there isn't a standout in the cast actually set, suggests that that cast is stronger than, you know, maybe a movie where one or two actors really, really steal the spotlight. I don't think that's the case with the platform. I think yeah. everyone makes the most of what, what screen time they have. There's uh, the character of Baharat who shows up late in the film, Emilio, Emilio Bualicoca. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I think he makes he makes an impact for sure from from yeah. the moment he he shows up. We don't know a lot about this character. We don't learn a lot about this character, uh, but he's he's an impactful character, and the the journey that he goes on with. Goreng is, is interesting, and I think he he's a good complement to the Goreng character in sort of the climactic scenes of the movie. So I enjoyed him as well, and as well as you know the entire cast. Yeah, I mean there are only a couple other people in the cast, and, and I was actually going to mention Baharat. I think he he for me is the one who steals the show later on uh, in the film, and if he's if roles are reversed and his and his is the first roommate or cell or floor mate and Zorian Agilior is comes later on in the movie. I think that we might be talking more about him. It's just because you get that initial impression is with this Trimagazi character. And it, it's a really strong impression and, and it lingers, like you said, throughout the whole film. And I agree that the, I think those are the two standout performances. It, I, I also agree with the point you're making about it being similar to Spotlight, that there is not really a single standout person of the cast so much more so than anyone else. However, my take is more, and this isn't necessarily not in line with what you were saying, but that's more because I think the pit just is the enduring character throughout the whole film that leaves the strongest impression and engages you the most more than an individual storyline. And I think that's intentional. I think that's pretty intentional. And so to have a cast that can play basically a supporting role to this larger setting of the pit, I think that that speaks to, again, the quality of the cast and playing the role that they're given to play and not sort of messing out, up that balance and, and creating an imbalance there. So again, I think it's a, it's a solid cast, but like I said, sort of when I was giving my general impressions, I'm probably not gonna remember anyone in this cast, uh, you know, a few months, a year from now. Yeah, and I think that is where it, it, you can distinguish it from Parasite a little bit, because as much as the house was a character in Parasite, the cast, I mean, the, the characters were very important to what was going on. Uh, you know, maybe even the most important thing to what was going on in Parasite. Here, like you said, they are really more just supporting players. Yeah, and and I don't think that the cast or the characters, I should say, is one dimensional. But I think that a lot of the characters, if not all the characters in this film, are meant to play certain themes. They're they're essentially supposed to be representations of certain themes, or you know, of some sort. Like you have Trimagazi, who is this you know mysterious. You don't really know where his loyalties kind of lie. You have Antonio San Juan's character Imogiri, who's this very sort of I hesitate to say bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, but someone uh, because she understands, I think the the pit and, and knows that uh, people in here are, are <laughs> not living up to the uh, necessary standards for everyone to survive. You know, people aren't eating their fair share at the higher levels. But she is, you know, someone who believes that she will be able to change people's uh, perspectives and beliefs and convince people that no, like if you actually do this, then you can. You, you, this can work. This whole system can work, and everyone can live and be happy, or at least get by. Yeah, um, she, she's the idealistic progressive of the movie for sure. Yeah, yeah no. And then Baharat, who is uh, a, a kind of an oddball character. It's um, it's someone who isn't necessarily individualistic, or you know, trying to look out for the good of everyone in the prison. He's just trying to get out of the prison. You know, he's trying to to do whatever he can to escape this hellhole for the lack of a better way to put it. He's trying to climb his way out and he's a bit of an optimist in how he views other people. Uh, but I think there's a lot going on there. So it, the characters in some way, I think, like I said, they're not one dimensional, but I think they're supposed to represent, you know, a very particular type of thinking that isn't necessarily too nuanced. And I think that's another reason why 
none of the individual performances are, are left to stand out with the exception of maybe Trimagazi, who I think has a little bit more, uh, like I said, mysteriousness around his character. Yeah. Um, at least at first. Yeah, I agree. All right, Scott, we have kind of already talked about this to some extent, but I did want to save some time to just talk about the pit itself as a character, as a setting. Uh, anything else you want to add to, to that sort of discussion that we've already started to have? Yeah, I mean, it leads to some very grotesque moments, right? Like the yeah. the um, the fact that the food obviously is eaten more and more as the platform drops down, uh, I mean, obviously creates for some... I, I, this is one thing that the movie does well, I think, just any sort of sensory action in the movie causes like a, a visceral reaction from like visceral disgust from us as the audience. Right. There's even one moment where there's like a sex sequence that happens in a dream. And even though, you know, it's supposed to be like a romantic act between two people, it's like kind of disgusting to watch just because of not just the way that it's filmed, but the, the way that we've come to see, like the way that we've seen these characters acting with the eating and just the setting that they find themselves in. Yeah. It's very unsettling to it's watch. It's animalistic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think that that is one element of the pit, which obviously stands out, even though I will say the food, when it is made on the first level, looks very good. Uh, there's some escargot. I've always wanted to try escargot. Um, and the way that it's prepared in this movie um, it makes it look very tasty. Uh, obviously, the, where it ends up eventually does not make it look very tasty. But yeah. um, re regardless, I think that, that the pit, do what? How about that panna cotta? Yeah, the panna cotta I also love and plays a very important role in this movie. But um, yeah, just the nature of the pit, I think, I, th I think a lot of the fascination with the movie is just watching how the dynamics in, in the pit work based on where you wake up or like what level um, you, you find yourself on. How are, how are you going to act towards your, your roommate, right? Because if you, if you end up at one of the lower levels, you basically are killing your roommate and feeding on your roommate in order to survive because by the time the food gets down to you, there's not going to be anything left. And so that's really the only way to survive. So I think that there's some suspense that is created there. Um, and then, yeah, obviously just, you know, the parallels to the social hierarchy literally acted out in this, you know, play of people going up and down um, and, and seeing how their attitudes change as they go from level to level and their attitudes in particular towards the people who are below them. And I think one of the interesting parts about it is that I wonder if their attitudes do change at all, right? Because you look at someone like Trimagazi who, you know, when you first meet this character and when you first meet Garang as well, they're on, I think, level 49. Is it? They're, yeah. they're on like a not... I 48, mean, I think, yeah. 48, yeah. It, it, that sounds like not a super great level to be on, but in the grand scheme of things, a pretty good level to be on. Yeah. Uh, when all is said and done. Well, and, and his disregard or his lack of appreciation for people above or below, it seems like he's just completely jaded as a character. Yeah, that was the point I was actually going to bring up, is that I think that as much as... It, and this is another area where it's like Parasite. Or like I know it's it seems cheap to be like continually comparing it to Parasite just because... That's you know the foreign film on everybody's mind, but it is thematically similar. I think and there are yeah. there are similarities between the film. We're not we're just not comparing it to Roma it. because it right. We're, we're not the same themes as we're Roma. not just bringing it up because it's the foreign film of the moment. But one th one thing that is similar about it to Parasite is that I think it'd be easy to look at both films as a sort of eat the rich you know me metaphor, which is definitely an element of it, right? Like like you said earlier, it, a lot of it is is a lot of the struggle that the characters go through in this movie is getting the people on the higher levels to, you know, agree to 
sh share the the their food and ration it out with everyone so that everyone gets their fair share and sort of the hopelessness of just trying to make that happen. That's obviously a critique of, you know, the upper class. Um, but I also think that the movie is interested, like Parasite was, in sort of the way that the lower class acts around each other. And, and in particular, what you're bringing up about Trimagasi, I think, stood out to me on on level 48, right? Like it's it's not a great level to be on. You're, the food that you're getting, you are getting some food, but it's mainly just scraps really, like, you know, leftover chicken bones and stuff like that um, is all you're getting. And yet there's this disdain that Trimagasi treat, you know, has towards the people below him. He's peeing on them and saying, you know, maybe next week it'll be them peeing on us. Um, and I, I think that maybe the movie is also interested in the way that people in, you know, who are, who are lower down in society, who are middle middle to lower class, um, act around each other and the fact that maybe they're just trying to, rather than also, also rather than working together, getting everyone to work together, encouraging everyone to work together, they're trying to sort of pull themselves up just selfishly um, it, it, with these sort of minuscule little victories, like the fact that maybe you get a little bit more food than the person below you or, you know, and, and that leads to him, you know, urinating on the people, people below him. So I think that that is one area where the critique, it does have a little bit of nuance to it, right? Because it's yeah. not just a straightforward, the rich suck, you know, the, the, we have to resort to communism and share everything and and um and and that will be that will bring about the ideal result that's that's not what the movie is saying yeah no i think that is also the most interesting part of the theme of the movie the critique of the film i'm not even sure if it's a critique it's just an again i think a lot of this film is just putting ideas out there and doesn't really come down either way just wants you to kind of discuss it. and that's probably the best thing for a movie to do like this and again i think that is the most interesting theme to think about is what it might or might not be saying about the middle class in America, uh, or this isn't necessarily meant to be America, obviously, because it's a Spanish film, but you know, in the world, the middle class and, and how those people interact with it. A very interesting thought. Um, and I think that segues nicely just to talking about the plot and themes. I think you talked about one right there, which is the, the nuance in the socioeconomic um, message of the movie. But there's some other themes as well that kind of tie in with, especially the last act of the movie, which I want to talk about. Um, and again, we haven't really talked about the plot at all. We've sort of alluded to some things happening, so we will take the gloves off now, talk spoilers. If you haven't seen this film and you think that it might be for you, I'd recommend stopping right now if you're still listening and haven't seen the film and go watch the film because I think that what we're about to talk about now will spoil a lot of the mystery of the movie, not that there's a wider mystery that isn't there still to be solved because the movie does not answer what the pit is or why does it exist or anything like that. Um, but there is character development points that we are about to talk about. And to take the gloves off there, you know, we talked about this point in the movie, the first act of the movie, which is just um, just Garang and Trimagazi kind of getting to learn about the pit. In some ways, it's kind of the least interesting part of the film, probably, just because it's explaining everything to you. There's a lot of tell, a lot of telling and not showing you much about the pit in this early act. But things switch gears <laughs> in the first month of the film because uh, Trimagazi and Garang wake up on a different floor, a much worse floor. Was it two hundred? Was it two? No, I can't two at the end. Right? Two, I can't. I can't remember which time it was a bad yeah. floor. Um, I just literally, I just can't remember at all because uh, they do hit a lot of different floors by the end of the film. But yeah, I think they're on. They're like in a floor that's like around two hundred. I think so. They're really at the bottom, and Garang wakes up, and Trimagazi has tied him up, tied him down completely, 
so that he can eventually cannibalize him um, after, you know, famine really sets in. Uh, so, Scott, that's kind of gets the rest of the plot discussion talking about. I do want to get to Act 3 in a second, but thoughts on how the movie develops starting kind of in Act 2. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's th- those are interesting, perhaps not unexpected moments again, because, oh, yeah. I, th- because I think of the way that this char- the character of Tremagasi in particular is laid is laid out as someone who, yeah, maybe he's giving information to Garang up to a point, but if he gets his chance, if if it's ne- necessary for him to to do so to survive, you know that he's going to betray Garang and any potential friendship that they they might actually have there, um, and, and that's what happens here. I think that um, you know the, the impact that this has on Garang is something that obviously he he rescues him. He's he's able to be rescued um, through through other circumstances, uh, but the impact that this has on Garang, I think you see played out over the movie and um, the maybe, maybe the temptation uh, uh, on his part to resort to the same tactics as Tremagasi, right? Because everybody's got to survive. There's not really alternative uh, ways to survive. Um, and, you know, may, maybe he has these high minded idea, ideas of, oh, you know, we can share with everyone. Everyone can have their fair share. But at the end of the day, when you wake up on floor 202, right, um, and there's there's no silver lining in sight, you're not you know, you're not going to have any food except for this person sitting across from you. Um, there's just a natural human instinct to do survival maybe what, instinct, what survival instinct, right? Right. Yeah. To do what Trimagasi perhaps does in the movie. So I think that there's some foreshadowing there, perhaps not again, particularly subtle foreshadowing going on in these, these moments uh, where we see Trimagasi turning on Garang. Um, but I, you know, I think it also speaks to the, the psychological effects that time in this prison um have on people, which I think is is accurately por- portrayed by the movie that they they turn on their brothers and sisters if if that's what it takes for them to survive. Again, it's about that selfishness. I think. Yeah, you're, I think you're absolutely right because what you know with what happens, you know, he he is rescued by this other character who we haven't talked about yet, Maharu, who essentially every single month she goes down through all the floors in search of this child that she has lost in the prison and. The first month when they're there on in floor 48 or whichever floor it was, I believe it was 48. She, I guess like he's kind to her essentially as she goes down, whereas Trimagazi is not. And when she gets, she's going down through the floor, through the different floors this month, riding the platform, she sees what, um, what Trimagazi is doing to Garang in that he's literally about to start carving off skin to eat uh, and share with him too, which is an interesting uh bit about that as well and gets off the platform kills him uh rest essentially saves garang and then continues on her way down the platform uh after a day and i think that again the interesting part here is you probably could have seen this coming in the film but i think that what it tees up for in the next part you know later on in the second act of this film when you know the month goes by he survives the month he he ends up on like was it like floor six or six yeah floor six with this uh, Emma Geary Emma character who's played by Antonio San Juan, who is this, you know, the progressive idealist, as you called her, she brings a dog in, you know, you know, some, something really bad happens with that dog. There's no reason to talk about it on the podcast. Um, but basically, you know, she becomes disenchanted and commits suicide the first day after their month and uh, commits suicide not by throwing herself down the shaft of, of the pit, 
but instead hangs herself in like what are they on like floor 222 or something they're on an even deeper floor yeah uh, that month and he has to decide whether or not he's going to feed off her body her dead body uh to survive the month uh doesn't it doesn't involve any, you know, her, him physically killing her or harming her, but he has to make that choice about whether he's going to uh, survive that way. And I think that that, again, tees up that conversation later on the film. Anything you want to add about that bit before we do get into sort of act three here? Nothing. I don't think about that bit, but do. Yeah. So I I think as we both sort of talked about at the beginning, I think act three with the ending and the finale that does come up, you meet Baharat. They're up on, again, a really, a super high floor. I think that actually might be when they're on floor six. I think she might, she might have been, he might have been on like floor 11 or 30 or yeah, something. I, floor six is where he's with Bahara. That's right. Yeah. So he's on floor six with Bahara. And this is like the fifth month, I think, of being in the prison now. So he's only got, he's, he's supposed to be in for six months. So he's only got two months left. And at this point, you know, things start happening and they get this idea of, all right, we need to send a message to, um, send a message to, the people in charge, people who run the pit. And how are they going to do that? He's having all these visions, all these hallucinations of Trimagazi and Imogiri who are telling him different ideas about ways that you could, um, that you could potentially send a message. And one of the ways that they uh, ultimately decide is, uh, is to ride through, you know, from floor six all the way to the bottom of the pit and essentially uh, at first, they think that, okay, we're just going to distribute food evenly where everyone in the pit is going to eat for a day, at least one day that everyone's going to eat. But that message after a few floors, it, it kind of changes and evolves a little bit when they realize that might, like, what is that going, how, how is the, how are the people in charge of the pit going to recognize that everyone in the pit ate that day? So instead what they do is they decide they're going to preserve one item of food on the platform, the panna cotta dessert, uh, all the way to the bottom, and that will be the message. And they're still going to distribute the food to everyone as they go through the different floors, but they're going to preserve one of the dishes. And pivotally, they have to stop the people on floors one to 50 from actually eating anything so that yep. everyone can have their share. Exactly. And I think that's where the moral gray area strikes home really hard in this film is that they start to kill people on different floors to prevent them from eating in order to send this message again there's more to talk about here, but early on, uh, later later on, as they descend the deeper and deeper floors and get to the bottom of the pit. But Scott, what did you think about this sort of moral evolution of, you know, in order to show that everyone is surviving, they are now killing the wealthy, essentially. Yeah, no, I mean, they, th- this, I think, gets into, again, it, it's it's kind of a selfishness thing. I think they want to be the ones, and, and I'll, I'll, we'll talk about this more as we talk about the last half, half of the ending. I do want to say more about that. But I think a lot of what they're doing early on is that, yes, their their end may be noble, right? Their end in getting the, the prison officials to change their ways may be uh, noble, but the means about which they are going it are perhaps not. I think they're more concerned with the reaction that they themselves are going to get for sending this message um, than, than they are about uh, protecting everyone else. And again, making sure everyone gets their share. It, it's more, I think they're more concerned with their own sort of, to, to borrow from the book that he has, their, their quixotic quest to 
you know, to, to bring this food to the top level, I think they're, they're more concerned about what, you know, what they are going to be able to do than they are about everyone else. And so I think there is a selfishness to the way that they go about it. Right. And the way that, that plays out is in, in one sense, the way that that plays out is they're having to kill these people on floors one to 50. And yes, it's because those in, in a lot of cases, those people aren't reacting well to not getting to eat, right? The, the people on floors one to 50 are used to getting to eat. They're the upper class, I guess you could say. And so they are, they are angry and they're not behaving correctly to the portion. Uh, right. Uh, to, to, to the proposition of them not eating for a day. Uh, but at the same time, like this is not the desirable end, right? Like, yes, we want everyone to have their share of the food, but uh, killing the, the wealthy, killing the rich, killing the people on the top floors, it's not really the right way of going about it either. There are things that are more important than sending a message. And I think that that's what ultimately they have to realize and they do realize once they get down towards the lower floors. Yeah, and, and I think quixotic is an interesting way to call it because yes, they are sending this message and, and yes, I think that the people who run the pit will be very surprised to see a preserved panna cotta dessert hit the bottom. But is that going to change anything in the pit? Right. Probably not, no. right? Probably not. So talking about it being sort of a, a fruitless or a pointless endeavor, it'll be, it, it, again, like you said, I think that's really a way to put it around. There are more consumed with this idea of sending a message and how important it is for them to send a message rather yeah. than the ultimate end product of the message that they're sending. Right. I almost saw it as almost a satire of like, virtue signaling and a little bit in a way that that maybe the the upper class or or even you know pr progressive activists maybe um take on in their quest to bring about change they reveal that maybe they're really not concerned about change at all uh and, and more concerned about the good publicity or you know pr that they may get from sending some sort of message that doesn't really make a difference these big sort of gestures on social media or whatever that armchair don't really mean anything in the in the grand scheme of things yeah ar armchair activists are are the best exactly. for sure um yeah no so i think that that's a super interesting part and i found that it was quite ironic at that point and intentionally so i believe that they had taken this idea of you need you know, two months before he's they're trying to convince people on the floors below them to, to portion out meals for the floor below and then only eat your fair share eat your portion make a portion for the next floor you know going from that one month to you know two months later you are going floor by floor and killing people if they want to eat so rather than trying to preserve everyone in the prison now you're just killing people who are more fortunate uh, in the prison who want to exercise their right as they, i think as one of them puts it on their way down it's like oh it's my right to eat this you know, eat this food on this month because I'm, you know, on floor whatever I'm on, like floor ten or whatever. So I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting development, and I think speaks to a different dimension of the hopelessness of of the whole experiment. But uh, again, there's a lot more interesting things that I think happen at the end, at the bottom of the pit when they start making their way down. You know, on their way down, you do see this Maharu character essentially. Um, well, it starts out as it, it seems like these these guys on this floor are trying to rape her. She's able to kill one of them, fend them off, but then the other one, I believe, kills her, something like that. But it essentially, it ends up with her dying. Um, it's a very very graphically violent scene, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And uh, so she's dead. So she's her mission to go through this prison each month and find this child has failed. I mean, we don't know whether each month she finds the child that she's looking for. Uh, but this month, it, it, the mission, you know, the goal finally failed. The purpose <laughs> failed, and 
so they continue on their way and they keep going deeper and deeper. And then at some point they realize that the platform doesn't stop on, a, on the floor when no one's alive, which they had not factored in, which I should say Garang had not factored in his calculation of how deep he thought the pit went. So he thought that the pit went about 250 floors deep when in reality it goes much deeper and they get all the way near the bottom of the pit and there's one floor where it stops and it seems like there's no one there. Um, but they know someone must be there if the, if it stopped on that floor. So they get off and lo and behold, they find this child on like floor 333. I think it was, cause I remember it being like a very striking number. Um, and Baharat has sustained some sort of injury from a fight they got in earlier. There was one floor which they got in this really knockdown, drag out fight with people with a sword, stuff like that. And he got cut and wounded. And so they rest on that floor for that day, I believe. And they're with this child, Scott. And, and things just kind of get a little bit uh, delirious at this point, I think is almost a way to put it, it's hard to fully understand exactly what's going on, but would love to get your take on them finding this child, this like mythical child almost that, that this woman, uh, Miharu, like I mentioned, had been looking for each month. And now that they've found this child exists, what do we make of that? Yeah, I, I think you're right to say that it is delirious. And I actually, that is a critique maybe that I had because I, I, I liked a lot of what happens in the third act of this movie where, where I think other movies and worse movies, a movie like this with a concept like this could really fall apart towards the end. I think that this movie does keep it together. But one, one thing, if I did have to criticize one, one part of the the last act, I think it is that it just because I understand that they're trying to disorient you a little bit uh, with the, all of these intercutting intercutting dream sequences. And you don't really know what is, yeah, what is real? What is he hallucinating? Stuff like that. It just became a little hard to follow narratively. I understand doing it to disorient you a little bit, but I think that maybe there was just a little bit too much of it. Uh, and, and I sort of lost my way. But I think that ultimately it ends on a strong note because I think that what happens with the child is really interesting, right? If we go back to what we're saying about how this is kind of a kind of satirizing just wanting to send a message the decision that they ultimately have to make right is what is the message that we we want to send like what is going to be the powerful message is it going to be sending this panna cotta up there and you know sort of looking at ourselves in the mirror and being really proud of ourselves because we accomplished this quest or is it going to be helping this child survive right like giving the panna cotta to the child so that the child can survive and then sending the child as the message i think there's a lot uh, going on there. And, and they ultimately, I think, make the decision to save the child, which I think the movie is saying, right, like, do, again, it go, going back to selfishness versus selflessness, I think that uh, ultimately what the, the movie is suggesting is that the way that we are actually going to bring about change or the way that we're going to give ourselves a chance to bring about change is not through these empty gestures through these messages, you know, through virtue signaling, through sending a message, it's going to be through investing in the people around us. And in particular, the younger generation, right? The, this child who maybe is going to take the experience that they have had and the fact that these people did take mercy on him and did offer him food and, and allow him to survive and use that as sort of an inspiration to hopefully change the future um, rather than trying to make this, you know, big grand gesture in the moment that maybe um, it isn't going to ultimately matter in the grand scheme of things. So I think, I thought that that was a, a very interesting turn that the movie takes in the third and in the third act. And I thought it, it uh, got the themes across pretty, pretty effectively in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I wondered about 
or that I've started to wonder a little bit after having seen the film and thought about it a little bit is how much of the end of the movie, the last 15 minutes or whatever, when they do find the child and then some stuff, some other stuff happens right after they find the child when they ride all the way down to the bottom, yeah. which I can't even make, honestly can't even make sense of myself. But I wonder if any of it is real. Yeah. Right. Like I, it, it makes me question. I think the movie makes you question whether, you know, they both died. Right. Or if any of this is actually real because this child is not supposed to really it, like this child's not supposed to exist and be in the prison. You know, you have Imogiri's character saying there's no, like you have to be older than 16 to be placed in the prison. You have Maharu uh, every single month writing, writing across all the floors to find this child with the, I think, assumption or presumption at that point that Maharu never finds the child. Mm-hmm. I think that earlier on the film, that that is what the conclusion that you're left to draw. And if you also just think about it in theory, so they've, they've locked this child on the lowest floor of the pit and it never, this child never visits another floor essentially because- How has the child survived, yeah. How has the child survived? You know, exactly, I think it's a great question. So part of me wonders, uh, part of me wants to agree with the perspective and the themes that, that you've taken. And it can also, ha- you can have it both ways to yeah, some I extent, think so, yeah. I think. But it also, I'm not really quite sure what to make of the fact that like, what if all of this is just a, a hallucination or, you know, kind of a, you know, dream-like thing where the character of Garang is either, you know, a moment away from dying, like, or some other, you know, grim end that I'm sure would be possible. And and, may, and maybe, you know, maybe that is speaks to that helplessness that you're talking about, that right, that maybe this is the ideal, right, that we can find this child, that we can invest in this child, and that the future can be changed through this child. But right now, the reality of where we are in society, in the world, is that this isn't a, an achievable thing. This is kind of a dream. This is kind of an aspiration. And right now, yeah. where we are is just people killing each other. Yeah, because at the end of the film, like I said, with the child, you know, Garang, Baharat has unfortunately, you know, died at this point, or we see him at least dead on the on the floor with the child. Um, and then they ride down to the very bottom of the pit um, uh, the, ne- the next day. And it seems like Garang <laughs> sort of walks off with this hallucination of Trimagazi, presumably into the afterlife. I mean, I don't really know any other way to read that, uh, to, to read that scene. And then the child is sent back up to the top of the pit with the platform. Uh, don't really quite, again, not really 100% sure quite how to make head or tail of the ending besides just the fact that Gareng has died and he's like walking off in, you know, some sort of purgatory or hell or heaven, whatever you want to think of it as, at the bottom of this pit and the child is sent up. Again, not sure that there's much more to add there, but Scott, love to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, I don't know. Again, I, th- I think it is just very, very disorienting and um, may- maybe that is because they want you to think it's ambiguous. I don't know. But at the end of the day, I I think that I still see it the same way um, that, you know, this is kind of the aspiration that um, that this child will be able to change the future. Maybe it's real. Maybe it's not. I think it just depends on how bleak you think the movie actually is. Um, But either way, I think it's an effective narrative choice for third act. Yeah, Um, agreed there. And I think something that you said earlier, you're absolutely right in a lot less uh, capable filmmakers hands, uh, this movie really, really could have fallen apart in the third act. Cause you see it every single year we see, you know, tens of movies that can't, can't land the, can't land the plane mm-hmm. uh, on this. And, and is it a perfect landing for this film? No, but again, I think there's a lot to digest there and there's a lot of good to talk about. Yeah. All right, Scott, I think that's, 
probably will do it for the discussion. Love to enter wrap up now. What was your favorite senior moment from the platform? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. I think mainly it is, you know, the, like I said, I really like the third act. And in particular, I just got really hype when Baharat and um, and Garang decide, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to ride all the way down uh, on these levels. We're going to have to convince these people, um, you know, th that they can't eat on the the first 50 levels or whatever. And and then we're going to send the panna cotta back up as a message. I, I thought it was just a really propulsive way. M maybe if there if there's any sort of lag in the middle of the movie, which I'm not necessarily saying that there is, but this it absolutely picks right back up for this third act. And I was just very fascinated and very interested to see how they were going to pull it off, if they were going to be able to pull it off, um, and just just what um, was going to happen as they moved further down in the platform. Um, and ultimately, I think I was satisfied with with what did happen. So yeah, just the the whole third act, really, but in particular that um, you know the the moment where they decide that hey, this is what we're going to do. They get on the same page and they're like, all right, let's do this. Yeah, I know. I think that's a that is definitely a good moment. It, I think that one of the things that I found really fascinating about the film, and I think this speaks to the difficulty in, in choosing a single moment, is there are some moments actually just in in the first act itself where they're cutting together a lot of days of scenes essentially, and they cut it together and piece it together with the music so well. And we t you mentioned the score being yeah. really good at the beginning. And I have not mentioned that, but I think the score is excellent in this film. And the sound, the sound editing, sound design of especially the first act of the film, I think really sets the tone really well for this very like creepy, almost uh, not anxiety inducing, but like madness inducing um, kind of repetition to what these guys are doing day in, day out. And I think that's captured really well uh, in, the, in the first kind of like first 10, 15 minutes of the film. Yeah, I agree. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. What are you giving the platform? Yeah, I was originally going to go with like in the low sevens, but I actually think in discussing it, I may have slightly talked myself up a little bit. I think there's yeah. maybe a little bit more here than we are uh, initially giving it credit for. So I'm going to go with the 7.9. I think it's a very solid watch, um, particularly in this time, right? When we're, we're quarantined, we have uh, a lot of streaming movies to watch. I think that this is an excellent 2020 movie uh, that is right there waiting for you on Netflix. And particularly if you're trying to get into foreign cinema after Parasite, if you really enjoyed Parasite, even though this movie isn't on that level, uh, I think that this is a movie that you're really going to enjoy. So give it a chance. Yeah. And it's just like 90 minutes. It's like 94 minutes, yeah. technically. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a short watch. And I agree. I think that coming off this film, it's rough around the edges. Absolutely. But I think there's a, a lot there to digest. I mean, we just talked about it for about 50 minutes. And I think that we could have gone into a lot more detail around some things. I do think that, that this may be a film that doesn't, not that it doesn't age well, but that this doesn't stick in like the social conversation, kind of like I was saying in my general impressions. But for a piece of film that could, that presents uh, ideas and themes in at least in a, in a very engaging and interesting way, this film has a lot of merit. And so I'm actually right about there with you. I'm at a 7.7. .7. So a good film. This is actually my second favorite film of the year so far. I haven't seen Invisible Man yet. I think that's the one that I think probably will be up there when I see it, hopefully later tonight. But uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a great film. I think this is like my number six, but that's just because I only like, I like movies more than you do, I think. I think some of the films that we've seen so far this year also 
are more in your wheelhouse than they are mine. Yeah. And like, Invisible you're way Man, more positive on Emma than, than I am. And Birds of Prey. And, and uh, I mean, Invisible Man is in there, and obviously you haven't seen that yet. Yeah. I do expect that to, to be high on your list after yeah. you watch it. Is Miss Americana higher than this? It is, yeah. That's my number four right now. Yeah. I think that that's one. Invisible Man being one. I think uh, Emma being another one. And then uh, Birth, I mean, Birds of Prey. We Obviously, we disagree on Birds of Prey. We disagree on Emma, too. I think that... Uh, to, to some degree. I mean, you still thought it was good. I thought it was good. See, yeah, but I also thought that the the like the movie just needed direction. Like it, it just didn't. It isn't like it went on for the first forty five minutes to an hour without a point. But that's a different film. Yeah. Um, and that will do it for our discussion of the platform. When we return, kind of like I teased earlier, we'll be talking about some TV casting news, specifically a very interesting bit of casting for the Mandalorian season two, and then doing a news roundup for COVID nineteen. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, like I mentioned before going to break, we are now going to talk about some TV casting news. It's amazing that we get any sort of news, honestly, these days that doesn't have something to do with with COVID-19 and the coronavirus and the effect that's having on the entertainment industry, because it's having a lot of effects. We'll get to those in a second, though, because we did get an interesting story uh, broke last week around Rosario Dawson being cast in season two of The Mandalorian. Uh, playing a character that you are just now becoming familiar with. Uh, you mentioned right at the start of the podcast, you're watching The Clone Wars. She's been cast as Ahsoka Tano, uh, who originally you know, came to, uh, I guess, the Star Wars consciousness, was created for Star Wars, The Clone Wars, the animated movie. Obviously, played a very significant role throughout the Star Wars, Clone Wars TV show run, as well as in Star Wars Rebels. Uh, she's really become a, a fixture in sort of those animated series uh, that have happened, and she's going to come to live action uh, through either the voice or the uh, screen capture acting of Rosario Dawson Scott. What do you think of this news? Yeah, I think it's really exciting. Yeah, like you said, for those who don't know Ahsoka, she's a huge character in The Clone Wars. Probably the, if you had to distill it to a main character in The Clone Wars, um, it's probably probably her. She, she starts as Anakin's Padawan and then uh, gradually rises to be a Jedi of her own. Right. Um, but yeah, apparently, from what I understand, Rosaria Dawson has been wanting to play this character for quite a while. Um, she's also, also the fans have wanted her to play the character yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, and so I, I imagine she's very, very thrilled about this. But yeah, I think this is an awesome bit of casting. I, I do enjoy her as an actress. I think it will be cool to see a character that we're, we are more familiar with. Um, in in season two of the Mandalorian, obviously because so much of the you know the season one of the Mandalorian was just all new stuff, and that and that was a good thing, right? But I think linking it to the out, out outside universe, the outside Star Wars universe, in some way in season two, I think is a natural next step to make, just yeah. to keep those you know really diehard Star Wars people hooked, right? And and wondering, well, you know, does this all really matter in the grand scheme of Star Wars? I think that Ahsoka's presence may may uh, answer that question in some ways. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really intrigued by this. I, it's another strong female character, right? I think the, the first season had a good one with uh, Cara Dune, played by Gina Carano, who is coming back for season two. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know what kind of role Ahsoka is going to have, but I think it would be cool if, you know, she joins in sort of the... Uh, group of heroes that um, we saw at the end of Mandalorian. Obviously, uh, you know, we I think the Carl Weathers character died, right? Or 
Um, someone died. Um, but I, I need to maybe rewatch it. But um, I, whoever I, yeah, I definitely died. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. But um, the the sort of central band of heroes, I really grew to like that by the end of season one. That dynamic really felt like Star Wars, right? Like really felt like the original trilogy Star Wars. Um, and so if Ahsoka becomes a part of that, I think this could be really cool. Yeah, I could talk about The Mandalorian for a while. Uh, quickly here, I think that this is a really interesting casting. I think what you're saying around tying The Mandalorian as a series into like the overall lore that has already sort of been built up within Star Wars is absolutely going to happen. It was even teasing that, obviously, in season one, especially towards the end, when you have more yeah. of this information around the fall of Mandalore, and then also Moff Gideon having the black lightsaber at the end of The Mandalorian, um, that, that the very last scene that you see there. I think all that ties in uh, to this wider lore that Ahsoka, at least in her time in these animated series, certainly uh, can can loop in with and can integrate with. And I don't know whether she's going to be a main character or a minor character or where she's going to shake out, but tying that in into other universe, pro like other canon in the universe, is I think it's going to be a really big part. I've heard like a speculation that she's like the uh, you know the the Jedi or force user that they come in contact with when he's searching for someone to take baby Yoda. Like that's a potential theory for, for her character. I don't want to get into any spoilers around Ahsoka's character arc from the series, uh, both for our listeners who might be interested in watching the clone wars, especially with season seven coming out right now, as well as for you, Scott, especially because there are some developments that I'm aware of that I'm a little bit bummed about that. I'm aware of, cause I am going to go back and watch it now. I think before uh, Mandalorian season two and to, and um, they're kind of spoiled for, spoiled for me just because I'm aware of them. But I think there's a lot of interesting developments that, uh, you know, in the in the latter seasons, the kind of the second half of the show, when I think everyone at, at Disney and, and Lucasfilm, I think, took the lore of the show a little bit more seriously um, and tried to make it into something like super compelling more than just like a, a you know, a, a engaging television show for children who are interested in Star Wars. I think that they took it a lot further, especially after the first season. And, and my understanding is that it only evolved after that. And to have Ahsoka brought into Mandalorian season two with Rosario Dawson, who is a, pr is a pretty big name actress, uh, all, yeah. all, thing, all things considered. I've also heard rumor that, that this is angling for her to essentially get a spinoff live action show. That's pure speculation. Um, but I remember, I don't remember, sorry, when Bob Iger was originally talking about, you know, these Disney, the Mandalorian as a Disney plus show, it, it was a, as a sort of vehicle for, characters, new characters, to introduce new characters in the Star Wars universe and create these sort of spinoff shows coming out of that as this kind of central narrative. <laughs> and, you know, Ahsoka is the character, I think one of those characters that everyone in the Star Wars universe who's deep enough into it, uh, who's watched Star Wars, you know, the Clone Wars television show, who's watched Rebels, people care about this character. People care a lot about this character. And I think that if this goes well in season two, then uh, you definitely could see a, a spinoff uh, coming sooner or later. And I think that's a, that's a really cool thing. Um, and the good news for Mandalorian season two is that it's already finished filming. So the coronavirus, unless the outbreak, unless it affects the post production process uh, for the show, it will be coming out in October. Uh, even in spite of all these, you see, you know, every single day there's a new announcement about a television show production being put on hold or being delayed or uh, pre production being you know, halted, things like that. So uh, right now the well is still full of new shows that have been filmed and that can be put out. But when you get later in the year, depending on how long this lasts, uh, you could see, you know, shows that have been forecast like Falcon and the Winter Soldier, not finished filming yet. Uh, has it, you know, could be delayed, but the Mandalorian looks like it's going to be okay. 
yeah, no, I think I think this will be very welcome when it, when it uh, finally drops in October, both for fans and for Disney. I think who um, maybe I'm sure the numbers have picked back up in the in the light of this quarantine and everything, but yeah. who I think we're we're struggling a little bit with Disney Plus and trying to put enough original content out there to and new content to keep people subscribed. Yeah, I think it's one of those situations where Disney Plus is like kind of lucky that HBO Max and Peacock haven't launched yet because the amount of content, like once you go through those, you know, those Disney animated classics, once you go through the Pixar, you know, movies, there's not a ton left there uh, in terms of TV shows that you would get. I mean, Netflix, it's hard to compare it to because Netflix is a, a, a machine that has been operating now for, you know, six years in terms of the television, like the original content it's been putting out. So it, it's hard to compare it to that. But Disney Plus is a little bit lucky that uh, there weren't new streaming services to eat their lunch because, yeah, you know, Hulu is part of the Disney network, so they're not doing it now. But right now, if I had to choose two streaming services right now to subscribe to and I can only watch those two, it'd probably be Netflix and Hulu, uh, to be to be honest. I, actually, that's not true. Netflix and HBO, but I wasn't really counting that as a streaming service yet. Yeah. Uh, but Netflix and Hulu would be the two streaming services. And, and if I only had to pick two networks, it would be Netflix and HBO just because they're new content is generally about such a high quality and they're, and they're pumping out enough content to keep you occupied. Um, and Disney plus isn't doing that yet. I wonder if they'll ultimately swap the releases, like the timing of Mandalorian season two with Falcon and the winter soldier, depending on how, again, how long this thing lasts, drop Mandalorian season two in August and then move, uh, move Falcon and the winter soldier back to October to finish, to have time to finish production and stuff. But just a thought. Yeah, it's very possible. All right, Scott, we've already started talking about effects of the coronavirus right there, but a, a couple other announcements, you know, more movies coming out on video on demand, not necessarily day and date like Trolls World Tour, which I think is the, the biggest uh, scare, uh, scary part that, that theaters are worried about, the day and date release on, on VOD. But The Way Back is coming uh, to VOD soon. The other movies that we were kind of speculating last week, whether they would come to VOD, the recent releases are coming soon. Uh, I don't know. If, I think Bad Boys might be the one movie that, and like Sonic are like the two movies I think standing out that I haven't seen that are coming soon to VOD. But Scott, but, any? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say those were earlier theatrical releases, so I feel like their digital releases are probably pretty soon anyway, and so they may just wait until the original date that they had for their digital releases. But I don't know. That's just I, speculation. That, that's true, especially Bad Boys. I think that's mm -hmm. true. Sonic being Valentine's Day, that wouldn't be till middle of May because it's the three month window. Um, yeah. Oh, I don't know about and I that, guess Birds but... of Prey was around that time too, and it's coming out obviously. So. Yeah, obviously Warner Brothers and NBC. I think leading, fair to say, leading the charge in terms of releasing their content. Uh, they're uh, early. There is a lot of chatter this week around whether something like Trolls World Tour, which we talked about last week, getting the day and date release on its release date coming to VOD, would carry through. We did have Warner Brothers come out and say they will not release Wonder Woman 1984 uh, on VOD day and date. They will delay that movie if the crisis is still happening. Uh, not a surprise for me. I not on air, but I said that I think they would. I think that they would delay that movie for years before they released it on on VOD first. But Scott, I, I know that your opinion on this maybe differs a little bit than mine. No, I, I well, I mean, I, I think it just depends on how long the crisis goes on, right? Like, I, I think right now there's no reason for them to to say that they're going to release it on VOD. I think that they can absolutely play the waiting game because. You know, we've been in this thing for a couple of weeks now, but I think we still don't fully understand how or fully know how long this is going to be, what the extent of this outbreak is going to be. Um, and so I think it would be a rash decision for them to 
to say we're going to drop this big tentpole film that we were counting on bringing in a billion dollars probably um, on on VOD where it it will probably I mean it would probably do really well but maybe like we talked a lot about last week maybe it wouldn't reach the heights of of a billion for sure so I, I think that they're doing the smart thing on this for now and I I mean only if the virus outbreak goes on for a couple of months I think will we see studios considering, just considering maybe um, dropping one of these movies on on VOD. But right now, I think that this is not to yeah. be expected. Yeah, because we did see, and, and this kind of came off the back of, we saw Black Widow being delayed uh, last week as well from its May 1st release date. I think that, again, I would stand by, like, it doesn't matter how long this crisis lasts. I think there is no way that a bankable film like Wonder Woman 1984 like Black Widow, like anything. There's just no way that these movies get dropped on VOD. I think that it's an interesting conversation to have about whether or not you that you could potentially make a billion dollars if you just do the math and see how many people have to rent the movie. Uh, but the effect of piracy, things like that, I think that is it's a real weight on uh, this type this type of thing. And I think that there is still some value in the big screen experience for and like the event experience of going out and watching a movie like a Wonder Woman 1984, like a Black Widow, like any like like a, like a Nolan movie, like Tenet coming out later this summer, like Top Gun Maverick. I think those movies, you just know that you're going. I mean, maybe less so Top Gun Maverick, but you know those other movies. Like you're going to make a billion dollars off those movies, and there's just no reason. It doesn't matter if you release them June 1st, August 1st, October 1st. It doesn't matter when you release them. People are going to go see those movies when theaters reopen. So I just don't think that you're going to see those types of movies getting. Uh, VOD releases, and I think that kind of segues nicely into the type of movie that that makes sense to release on VOD. We talked about The Invisible Man last week, but one thing, not just going to VOD, but actually going to streaming, we saw this week, is that The Lovebirds has been sold by Paramount to Netflix for a streaming release. I think they're still working out the details of when the streaming release will be, because it was supposed to come out in theaters this week, I believe. Uh, but that that is the first kind of auction item of a studio, a studio comedy here going to Netflix, where it would probably on streaming is going to be more successful than it was in theaters. And Scott, to your point, even though I maybe am a little bit more positive on uh, what this movie looks like, I think that the general opinion is more in line with your opinion that this movie has been marketed really poorly and does not look like a super interesting watch for two rather bankable stars and Kumail Nanjiani and Issa Rae. And I think this movie is going to be a lot more successful on Netflix. And it's interesting if this type of movie if it doesn't get a VOD release from the studios, if it is, if more of these movies are going to, you know, be sold to a Netflix or even, you know, be sold to a Disney to put onto Hulu or be put onto Disney Plus, I think that's a really interesting conversation. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this absolutely this make this makes complete sense. I think that if you had told me after watching the trailer for The Lovebirds that it was a Netflix movie originally, I would have been like, yeah, that makes complete sense. Like, yeah. it looks like it is on that level. I mean, Netflix release, releases a ton of like romantic comedies every year. And they're um, successful on Netflix. Yeah, and, and, and they're successful. And some of them are, are pretty good. None of them are classics or are, you know, a great cinema, but some of them are, are pretty enjoyable. Some of them probably aren't. This to me, this movie looks terrible to me, to, to be quite honest with you. And I think that other than the fact that it has, you know, the, the two stars that you mentioned, maybe, maybe that being the thing that is getting it to the big screen, uh, okay. was getting it to the big screen. I think that this totally makes sense as a Netflix movie. And I totally agree that this movie is going to get, uh, is going to do better on Netflix than it would in theaters because people, I mean, it's just so much easier to just say, 
yeah, like I saw this trailer. It didn't look that good, but I'm paying for Netflix. It's right here. Click. I'm going to watch it. And then I watch it yeah. for an hour and a half. Then I'm going to make the effort to go out to the theater to see this movie that I don't think looks very good. Yeah. I mean, I think romantic comedies and also just studio comedies in general, I think are, are suck. really taking a hit. <laughs> well, sure. That's uh, most of the time. Yeah. A lot of them do suck, yeah, but also good. Netflix as, as a concept and streaming as a concept in general has just really taken the wind out of comedy and romantic comedy, like theatrical release uh, sales. And I think that uh, we've seen that effect for several years, uh, especially as you know, you get more of these sort of tentpole movies every year as well to spend your money on to go see in theaters. You know, people aren't just just aren't going to go see most of these films. There's the you know the odd exception here and there. I think something like uh, Long Shot last year was relatively successful. Good Boys as well. Number two that I can think of that might have been a little bit more successful. Still, not I don't think like a you know a hands down success. Yeah, and like uh, and like Booksmart, for example, despite being like one of the most talked about comedies of the year, yeah. didn't do well. It didn't do well. In yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think this this movie was especially coming. Yes, it's good counter programming to A Quiet Place Part Two, which was what we were originally going to review this weekend. It was supposed to come out this weekend. This movie was gonna bomb. Like this movie, there's no way this movie wasn't bombing. Um, like sure, like is it is it budget super high? No, but whatever money they were spending to market it, because I saw this, I mean, I saw trailers to this movie a ton before films. Like, yeah, I, I feel like I've seen trailers for this for months. Uh, th this movie was not going to make that money back. No, I, I totally agree. I think that this is, the, this virus outbreak happening may be the, the blessing that they never knew that they needed. Yeah, maybe. It's an interesting also thought as well is that, you know, like you said, this virus has only been having the effect it's been having for a couple of weeks. Was this deal in process even before? Yeah, you know the COVID nineteen happened because I mean this is a pretty big deal for you know a movie of the size and budget. Again, maybe not a huge budget, but like in terms of marketing spend, a lot of money has been put behind this at Paramount already. It, it makes you wonder whether this film has been on on the chopping block or on the auction block uh, for longer than the virus has been having the effect that it's specifically having on the entertainment business. Yeah, who knows? All right, last little bit of the COVID nineteen news thing that I do want to mention is just that like. Theaters are in trouble right now. Like honestly, AMC, uh, Regal, they are burning cash uh, on their real estate right now. Obviously, they're not open, so they're not having to pay us uh, uh, wages. I don't think. I actually, I'm, I need to look at that a little bit more. I'm not sure if they're paying their employees or not. I don't think that they are. They're salaried employees, of course they are. Like they're like they're um, biz they're, they're business stuff, people, yeah. but they're people in the actual theaters. I don't think that they are paying them. I could be wrong about that. Uh, I know Alamo Drafthouse, for example, is not. They're getting a lot of bad press uh, for that. But you know these they're teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. You know they they keep asking Congress to include in this stimulus package that is expected to pass to include a bailout for movie theaters, a la sort of you know the financial company bailout that happened back two thousand eight two thousand nine. And if they don't get it, it sounds like a lot of them are going to go into bankruptcy, which doesn't mean that they're going to disappear, but it does yeah. mean they're going to sell off a lot of their assets and sell off a lot of their theaters, and so their reach. Uh, you know AMC being the largest chain, I can't remember how many theaters they have. I think it's a few thousand uh, of the 4,500 or so that, that exist in the U.S., um, you know, they, they're in a lot of trouble. They're in a lot of trouble. And, and if they don't get this bailout that they need, you could be seeing a lot of AMC and, and Regal and other uh, larger or popular theater chains having to reduce the number of theaters that they have in the country. Yeah, it's scary that this is, I mean, it, it's sad that this has happened so quickly, right? Because, again, we have only been in this for a couple of weeks. You know, you'd like to think that we could break out of this in another month or so, at least to the point where theaters could be able to open. Um, 
But the fact that, I mean, the clock is is ticking and ticking very quickly for these theaters is it, sad to watch. And yeah, I, I definitely feel bad about the, the big chains and the fact that, you know, there's a ton of employees who are not getting paid anything right now. They're out of a job. I'm, I'm sure that they um, are, are feeling a lot of anxiety at this time. But I also feel really bad for, for independent theaters as well. Yeah. Right? The Aperture Cinema, which I've talked about a lot on this um, show, I, is you know, my favorite place to go in Winston-Salem Theater or anything, honestly. It's just my favorite place to go. I love Aperture. I love the type of movies that they show. The people who work there are great. Um, it's in a great location. And I don't know what the future holds for them. They're, they're trying some, some measures like releasing certain movies online to, that you can purchase. Uh, but I imagine if, if the burden of being closed for a couple of weeks is this great on the big theater chains, then I can't imagine what it is on a small independent chain like Aperture or a small independent theater like Aperture, which, yes, has been around for several years in the Winston-Salem community. But I just don't know if they're getting the kind of revenue, if they're getting donations, anything like that, that is going to keep them afloat. And, you know, it, it would be a shame. I, I hope that something can come through in, in a bailout package or something like that, because the arts are important, man. We Maybe, maybe we can say that it's a non-essential business or whatever for the purposes of this whole outbreak thing. But I think we have to think about the future too, because this isn't going to last forever. Um, and the, the arts are important. That's, that's all I'll say. I don't think we need to get on a soapbox or anything about mm -hmm. it. Cause I don't think it's the end of the world as we know it yet. But um, I, I think that this is distressing news for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And, and I wonder almost if the independent studio, like the independent theaters here, might actually, in a strange way, be a little bit better off. Um, look, like I, I, it's going to depend a lot. I think theater by theater, and just how their particular uh, like PNL sheet, not to get into super financial terms, works. But the reason why the large studios are going under is because they don't have any cash flow to offset all the real estate costs that they have to pay. And that is true for smaller theater chains as well. But there's less money going out the door with no money coming in on those smaller theater chains. And maybe the knife edge that those theaters are on is tighter, just in terms of you talk about paycheck to paycheck a lot on a personal level, but paycheck to paycheck for their business. Mm -hmm. But um, again, it, I can imagine a situation where yes, things are absolutely dire for everyone in this business, but relatively speaking, someone like Aperture might be in less trouble than an AMC just because of the, the fewer uh, liabilities they have on their, on their income statement. Yeah. You, you may be right about that. And uh, you know, maybe uh, so Kumail Nanjani, we, we just talked about him, his wife, Emily, Emily Gordon is from Winston Salem. They have in the past paid for screenings of certain movies at Aperture. Maybe Kumail can use some of that money that he's going to get off of the Netflix uh, returns for yeah. the Lovebirds and and help out Aperture. I don't know, but uh, I yeah. wonder. Yeah, I yeah. wonder about that. You should just make sure to tweet at him this episode. We I talk will. About, yeah. talk about Winston Salem. It would be a shame if if such a a great piece of the culture in Winston Salem uh, were to go away like Aperture. Yeah, I mean, all jokes aside, in Williamstown, and you're absolutely right. Like in Williamstown, where where I went to college. You know, Images Cinema is the indie theater that they have there, and uh, I don't know. I still get their weekly newsletter, and um, obviously they're they're not open right now, and uh, that that's tough for them because they're also in a situation where, kind of like Winston Salem, you know, you're losing against a little bit different, but like they're losing most of their town population right now with the fact that Williams is going online classes. You're not allowed back in the dorms, um, so even if they were open, and when they do reopen eventually, depending on when that is, if that would be before the end of the school year. You know, they don't even have that many people in town yet to go see the films. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it's it's not a good situation, um, no matter how you look at it. But I, I hope, hopefully, those independent theaters 
are in a slightly better position and a slightly less relatively less dire position than the larger chains, but it's, it's not good top to bottom right now for the theater business. Yeah, not at all. All right, Scott, I think that should just about do it for episode 85 of some like it, Scott, any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Uh, just stay strong, wash your hands, you know, we'll, we'll get, we'll get through this. Yeah, definitely wash your hands. Don't, you know, stay six feet, like seriously guys, like stay, take social distancing seriously. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously this is releasing a few days after we record, but things in Italy are horrible right now because their healthcare system have been overwhelmed. They're having hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people die uh, every single day because they literally don't have enough beds and enough uh, respirators um, or ventilators to be able to go around for everyone who's in the hospital and sick. And so people are just <laughs> dying because uh, they don't have enough medical equipment. And that can happen in any country. Uh, that can happen in any country, including the U.S. So take it seriously. Wash your hands. If you have um, to go. If you have to go out, support your local businesses, like order carry out from plate from restaurants and stuff like that uh, to, to keep, you know, employees and stuff like that, making a living wage at this very difficult time for them. Um, so if you have to go out, that's the best case scenario, I think. All right, Scott, on that note, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Scarby Dent. All right. And I can be found at, at Shelton 2013 over on Twitter. Please follow our podcast on Twitter as well. That's at Media Plug Pods. Subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes. And don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash mediapodpods. Uh, you know, we have a bunch of different reward tiers on our Patreon. Choose the one that, that works the best for you. You can get different rewards based on which tier you're a part of. We'd appreciate it, even if you contributed only at that $1 level where you can get episodes early. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash mediapodpods. Check it out for yourself and pick the tier that's right for you. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine too. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to uh, listen to your podcast. So we'd appreciate if you check us out on all those, on wherever you check out your podcast, rate, review, subscribe, share, all that jazz. And thank you for listening to this episode uh, where we chatted about the platform. Uh, we're really shaking things up. Uh, we are now going to review next week a movie that we had originally planned on reviewing earlier this month, uh, The Invisible Man. But until then... For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.